This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would convict us afresh by the power of your Holy Spirit of that which you want to lay on our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were asked, what is the single most fundamental and important doctrine of the Christian faith, what would you say? Or what would your response be to the question, well, why do you believe what you believe? Our reading today from St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians addresses these fundamental questions. And I don't suppose that the Apostle Paul would have even hesitated before giving an answer to the question of what lies at the heart of our faith. He is in no doubt at all that it is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Indeed, he says, this is of the first importance. This is the, the absolute minimum, irreducibly so, on which our faith is based. The resurrection is the key to understanding and being ready to explain to others why we believe what we believe. And there are at least two reasons why this is so. First, the fact of the resurrection means that our faith is founded not on a mere set of philosophical or religious ideas or ideals, but rather on a real historical event supported by strong evidence. Second, the resurrection provides us with a means of hope even in some of the darkest times of our lives. I think many of us felt that very poignantly at yesterday's funeral. Jim chose as the epistle reading the selection of verses from this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. And in fact, today's lectionary portion also has that, and so does next Sunday have another section, so we'll be hearing more about that. But this great passage of Scripture lays out the hope we have as Christians that we will see again our loved ones who have died in the Lord. Death is not the end. And so St. Paul begins this chapter by reminding us of this good news. He says that he handed on what he had first received, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised up on the third day. The resurrection isn't just a theory that the Apostle Paul or anyone else had dreamt up. He explains that Jesus appeared first to Peter, then the twelve, then five hundred at one time. In verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, and this next bit's important, most of whom are still alive. Paul is writing this letter just some 20 years or so after the, these events had taken place. And so most of those 500 witnesses are still alive. Not all of them. Some of them will have died of natural causes. Some of them had died because they'd been persecuted for their faith. But it's significant because these group of 500 or more eyewitnesses 
were still around if somebody wanted to go and ask them if what Paul's saying is true. Unless Paul was sure of his facts, it was a very foolish assertion to make. And of course, these people that were testifying to the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this wasn't some academic thing, because for some of them it cost them their lives. That said, there are still folks today who would prefer or, or try to spiritualize this talk of resurrection. They argue that when we say that Jesus rose from the dead, uh, we're, we're really using symbolic language. But that is manifestly not what Paul is doing. Jesus wasn't symbolically crucified or symbolically buried or symbolically raised to life again. No, he was really dead. He was really buried. And there was a real bodily resurrection. And so these are the facts that Paul bases his faith upon. These are the facts that have been handed down through the ages and on which genuine Christian faith is based today. The fundamental Christian message is not a complicated system peculiar to some ancient theologians. The core content of the gospel is the plain and simple declaration shared by the whole Christian church concerning the death of Christ for our sins according to the scriptures, his burial, and his resurrection on the third day. So being a Christian, becoming a Christian, is not some vague religious experience um, which you can fill out with any kind of content you like. Genuine Christian faith has specific content. Now, of course, there are all manner of things upon which Christians disagree, but there are some non-negotiables, and the resurrection is one of them. I'm so grateful that in our tradition we uh, recite the creed together each week. It's good to remind ourselves of our core beliefs, and I find it encouraging to proclaim these truths out loud together. The resurrection really is the key to our understanding of God and of ourselves, as well as being the key to finding meaning in this world. For in it we find hope. So often our own crises and tragedies can cause our hope to waver, and we can lose a right perspective on life. You know, death has a way of leveling the playing field. You know, when I think of yesterday's service, now I realize not all of you were here, but this place was jammed full. There was a huge outpouring of grief. And I find amongst many of the things that happens, it, it puts into perspective some of the, the squabbles or differences or hurts or, or hang-ups, no matter how real they may be, that we can carry around and that can shape how we behave and relate to one another. None of us knows when our earthly lives will be over. They could end in a twinkling of an eye before the end of today. But alongside the grief and the tears of yesterday, with the aching loss of our beloved sister Christina, there was something else, and it was palpable. There was great hope, and this place was filled with love. Why? 
Well, partly, of course, because of all the lives that Christina had touched. But also because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the first fruits of those who will be raised in new life if they put their trust in Christ. And so, therefore, we're not as those without hope. And, you know, resurrection is not only about life after death. It's about life before death. The resurrection of Christ is the best tangible evidence that there really is more to our lives than however long we get to live here. Death need not have the final say. Death is not the end for the Christian. Jesus has broken the power of death. And that's proved by the resurrection. And that's good news, right? That's what the gospel is all about. And that's the message that Jesus calls his disciples to proclaim everywhere they go in word and action. Every Christian is called to be an ambassador for Christ, telling others of his saving love. We are, in the words of Jesus to Simon Peter from today's gospel, to be those who fish for people. And sadly, I think sometimes we resist or we avoid this. Perhaps it's because the very word evangelism is to many a bit of a dirty word. Perhaps it conjures up some sort of hard selling or embarrassing techniques that we're meant to practice on complete strangers, or worse, on our own friends. But you know, you won't find any awkward sales pitches commended by Jesus or in the writings of the apostles. Paul and Timothy, writing to the church at Colossae, say, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. And while it's true that God calls and equips some people to be gifted evangelists, that's their job, that's clearly not everyone's gifting and everyone's calling. And yet, all who are Christians are called to live our lives in a way that evokes questions. We see this in Peter's first letter. He writes, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this, he adds, with gentleness and respect. In the community group um, to which I belong, we're reading a little book called Surprise the World. And in it, author Michael Frost speaks of the need for Christians to lead questionable lives. Now, he does not mean by that, I should add, lives that are a bit dodgy or questionable in a bad way, but rather that all believers can be leading lives that evoke questions from their friends. And when that happens, opportunities for sharing faith abound. You know, he starts off just talking about this and saying, you know, often our lives as Christians seem indistinguishable from everybody else. Particularly, you know, you think of where you live and there are people might be washing their car or, or um, mowing their lawn or giving a nice wave, cheery hello. Okay, well, we all do that. So what's the difference with the Christian person who lives on that street? Now, of course, it begs the question, so how do we do this? How do we live questionable lives? Frost writes, if you want to be a generous, hospitable, spirit-led, Christ-like missionary, 
Don't just learn those values, foster those habits. And over the last several months at Ascension, we've talked quite a bit about good spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines. I wrote in last month's Ascent about the challenge to be daily in prayer and reading God's word. We talked previously about um, living generous lives and the theme of generosity. But I think if we're to take our Lord's charge to catch people seriously, then we need to foster other good habits as well. Habits of hospitality to those who are not part of the church. Habits of blessing others. Just because that's the stuff of the Christian life. In a sense, I I find this a hugely freeing and exciting challenge. It means we don't have to feel like we've got to sell a product or we've got to close a deal. Actually, we're not doing anything other than loving other people, blessing other people, and being ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us when people ask. I think very often we get constrained by our own fears. Perhaps we're like Gideon, whom, when called by God, says, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest, and I'm the least in the family. But Gideon's excuse was lame. Gideon quickly found out that being weak wasn't going to impress God very much at all. Yeah, he was weak. So what? The scriptures are full of very ordinary, often weak, not so special people being used by God in extraordinary ways. I mean, have you read the Bible? Have you seen the people that are in it? Their lives are seriously messed up. And elsewhere we find in the scriptures that St. Paul had learned that it was precisely when he was weak, then he was strong. God had told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. That is so true. I wonder, do you ever make excuses to God? Do you ever find yourself shying away from sharing the good news about Jesus with someone because you think maybe, well, you're too young or you're too old or you're too weak or you're not very articulate? But if God wants us to live questionable lives of love and service in the world, which he does, then how valid really are our excuses? God knew what he was doing when he called Gideon. He knew what he was doing when he called Simon Peter. And Simon's a piece of work, right? And with all the rest of the disciples, and with us. And when God calls us to follow him, he also equips us and enables us for the task in hand. Gideon, well, he wanted a sign from God before he would go and fight the Midianites, as God had asked him to do. And God, in his graciousness, did give him a sign. The angel of the Lord tells him to prepare a meal. He places it before the angel. And um, the angel of the Lord then reaches out, touches the food with the tip of his staff, whereupon fire springs from the rock and consumes it. And then the angel disappears. Not surprisingly, Gideon is absolutely terrified as he realizes that he's just encountered the power of God. And he cries out, help me, Lord. And God says, don't be afraid. In the account in the gospel of Simon Peter fishing 
we see something similar happen. Now, on this occasion, Simon hadn't asked for a sign, but boy, did he ever get one. After having worked all night, caught nothing, he's exhausted. Jesus says, out you go, put the nets down, do it again. And rather reluctantly, I think, he says, well, if you say so. They catch so many fish that their nets literally start to break. They call in the other boat. The boats start to sink. And of course, he realizes. He realizes he's encountered something extraordinary. And he says to Jesus, go away from me. Lord, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. But from now on, you'll catch people, not fish. And so in faith, Peter leaves everything in order to follow Jesus, to take up that task he was given to be a fisher of men. Now, we may not always like what Jesus asks us to do, and we may even think it's a bit futile. But like Simon, we need to trust and obey. Like Gideon, we may sometimes be tempted to ask God for signs. I wouldn't really recommend that we do that. I don't actually think that's what we're meant to do. But, you know, and here's why. God has already given us the greatest, the best, the most powerful, compelling sign that there is. What is it? Yes, it's the resurrection. The resurrection is the sure sign that God does love and care about us. Indeed, he loved and cared about us so much that he died for us and there on the cross defeated the power of death, defeated the power of sin. And so Jesus still calls us to follow him and he calls us to fish for people. And when we do what Jesus asks us to do, like Simon Peter, we might be in for all manner of surprises. You know, I hesitate to, to read scripture allegorically, but as I was thinking about what to say today, one thing that struck me about this story is, is in the abundance of the catch of the fish, which, you know, threatened the boats. It was so overwhelming, they started to sink. And I think of, of our task here. You know, what if such was the abundance of the harvest that it kind of threatened the boat. I mean, you know, kind of upside down, use your imaginations, this is the boat, okay. But, you know, if we didn't just have 20 or 30 or 50 more people, what if we had 100 or 200 or 300? That would definitely be a challenge, wouldn't it, to how we operate and what we do. Are we ready for that? Do we want that? I do. I do. And God is a God of surprises. Let's pray that God will so pour out his Holy Spirit upon us that he will once again amaze and surprise us. And like Gideon and like Simon Peter, we need to trust God if we're going to see God's power working among us and through us to reach out to others, to catch people. This is not some creepy thing. You know, I love the reply one of the kids gave when I talked about, well, what does catch people mean? And she's thinking about the fishing and says, well, maybe it's, you know, catching someone who's drowning. 
Absolutely, that's what this is about. Absolutely. It's a matter of life and death, and the resurrection gives us the hope. Why would we keep that to ourselves? The Apostle Paul knew that it was only because of God's grace that he was who he was. He knew he was no great, great shakes without God. And he knew not only the truth of the resurrection, but he also proclaimed it boldly. And that's our job. And we can have every confidence in the gospel because it's based on the good evidence and solid foundation of the resurrection itself, which makes new life and hope truly possible for all who believe. So let me finish with this. How might you live out the gospel this week? How might you live a questionable life? Pray that someone may ask you to give a reason for the hope you have as a Christian. Amen.